are in a series that we started a couple weeks ago talking about what it looks like to move beyond useless faith, and we are in the book of James. We're in the book of James in the Bible, and just as kind of an uh, intro to what this series really is about, James was one of the earliest leaders in the church. He was the brother of Jesus. And he's writing because the church gets started. Jesus, you know, Jesus uh, comes to the earth. He is crucified. He raises from the dead. He leaves. And now the church exists. And people say, okay, yeah, we're, we're in. We, we believe Jesus is who he said he was. And, and the book of James is written to say, okay, and now what? Like, what happens next? What is life with faith? What does life with Jesus actually look like? Now what? Okay, yeah, Jesus was here, and, and now he's gone. And, and James was the brother of Jesus, and he was close to Jesus, and, and other people had known Jesus. And, and now what? Now that Jesus is gone, and now that we actually have faith, now what? And this is really important for those of you that do have faith in God, and you would say, yeah, I, I do, and now what? What does my life actually look like? What does it look like to have a faith that, is actually useful? What does it look like to have a faith that is actually a part of my life? And I think I, I used the analogy of a record player last week, um, but, but I was thinking about it this week. Again, how many of you have had a George Foreman grill? Um, I think everybody, right? Every, I think 100% of people have owned a George Foreman grill at some point. George Foreman is, you know, rolling in cash right now. But how many people's George Foreman grill is sitting on the shelf at the Goodwill or it's in the basement? It's, it doesn't, it's not something that you use anymore. It doesn't mean that it is useless. It still can crank out a panini like nobody else can. But it's, it's there, but it's not useful. You don't actually use it. It's not something that's actually central to your life. It's not something that's actually central to your eating. It doesn't influence kind of how you go about your day and how you think through your meal plans. It's there, but it's useless in some ways, not because of qualities in and of itself, but because it's not being used by you. And if you're someone that uses it and you're related to George Foreman, I think he has like a thousand children. So if you're related and you're like, no, I use it every day. Okay, then that's great. But for the rest of us, that can be what faith is like. And that's what James is really trying to talk about in this letter. He doesn't just want us to have faith where it's just like, yes, I have it. It's there. And yet it's not an active central part of my life. We go, yeah, it's there. It's somewhere in the bottom in my basement. It's somewhere in a cupboard buried under stuff. It's there, but it's not actually useful. James says he doesn't want us to have that kind of faith. He wants us to have a kind of faith that touches all of our life, a faith that actually is central, a faith that actually um, influences every part of who we are and what we do. That's what James wants for us. That's what James desires for us. And so if you're a Christian and you say, yeah, that's what I want. I want faith to actually matter to my life. Or maybe you're exploring faith and you're not sure what you believe. And that is the kind of faith that you would want. Maybe that's part of what your issue has been with church or religion is I don't see how it really makes a difference. I don't see what it would actually do. I don't see how it would actually affect anything. And James says, yeah, there's a faith that exists that's like that. There's a kind of faith like that. And, and he writes because he says that's not what he wants for us. Now, today he's going to hit on something that is very important in our culture. It's interesting how relevant the Bible actually is to so many issues, but it's, a, it's an issue that is something we really care about in our culture. I think, you know, different times in history, we care about it more than others, but especially right now, it's something we really care about in our culture, which is the idea of inclusivity or being inclusive. It's something talked about in advertising. People may say, hey, we want to represent, we want to make sure we're representing different kinds of, of people. I was looking at um, some different news articles this week and just talking about how 
um, different companies want to make sure they're representing different, a, uh, not age, um, weight, weights, you know, different people of different body sizes and say, hey, let's make sure in our advertising we're representing people of different kinds of body types and different sizes and not just having a bunch of skinny people and not just, but let's make sure we're representing that. So it's something talked about in advertising. It's something talked about in business. I've seen articles this week, and you've seen all this stuff too, but talking about how we want to make sure um, in the article I saw was talking about how in technology, we want to make sure that women are represented in technology, that it's an inclusive field. It's not just kind of, it's just the boys club. And it's something we talk about with laws. We want to make sure that laws get changed so that there are inclusive laws and people of all kinds and types are included in things. And it's not that our laws are not exclusive. It's something that gets talked about with gender and with race and with all sorts of things. It's, it's something that we care about a lot in our culture right now is the idea of being inclusive and having inclusive things. And part of that is because of an, the idea of justice, of just, man, it's just fair. We don't want to exclude people. And part of it is ideas of joy, of like, man, wouldn't we benefit as a society if people are included in things? Wouldn't we benefit as companies if, if people are different kinds of people and different types of people are included in things? And it's not just one kind of, of person. And so James is going to talk about this today because though it's important to us, especially today, isn't it really difficult? Even though that's the ideal, even though the ideal is an inclusive community or an inclusive society or an inclusive culture, even though that's the ideal, it's really hard to get. It's really hard to get. It's an ideal that we have, but it's really hard to actually have or actually maintain if we do have it. And is it even possible? Is it even possible to have that kind of society or that kind of community? Is it something we'll ever be able to enjoy, a society, a community that is inclusive? And faith, faith should help with that. If faith is useful at all, if it's, if it's not a useless faith, it should have the power to help with that. It should have the power to help us in this. And James says, in order for us to experience this, we need to understand why it's difficult and what it actually looks like to have and, and how, we, how we get that. And so let me read kind of the whole passage that we're going to look at, and then we will look at those questions. So here's what James says in James chapter 2. He says, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And actually, this word partiality is plural. So he's actually saying, show no partialities, show no favoritism, as, so favoritisms of different kinds. And he's going to give us a specific example. For, for example, if a man, and he's going to envision like a church situation, this right here. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and you say, sit here in a good place. So a guy that's rich and gold on his fingers and he's wearing, you know, just nice fine clothing. He comes in and you say, hey, we've got a great seat for you. For us, that would be the seats in the back, not the seats in the front. Obviously, as you can see, no one sits here. So, hey, come sit right here in the back. You know, it's kind of the reverse of some places. We've got a back row seat for you. He says, sit, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Imagine the audacity of that. And yet James isn't coming up with a hypothetical, hypothetical situation. This is something actually going on. He says, you sit down at my feet. And then he says, look, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich, and right here he's just talking about a specific kind of historical situation of what was taking place. He's not saying this is true all times, although often it is. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name, God, Jesus, by which you were called? A lot of the rich at this point were against Christianity. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, if you show favoritism, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. So, James says, James, James says, look, this is something that's on God's heart. It's important in our culture, an idea of an inclusive culture. That's important to us. It's something we desire and find hard to get. And James says, yeah, it's not just our culture, but God cares about this too. So, what can lead us to experience this? What can lead us as a church to experience this? What can lead you personally in your life to experience this, what could actually create this kind of community? We have to understand a few things. First is, why is inclusive community difficult? Because isn't it easier not to do this? I mean, if we're just honest, and I don't care how progressive or how liberal or how awesome you are, isn't it true, if we're honest, that this is difficult? Isn't it easier? Isn't it easier to just be with people like you? Isn't that easier? Doesn't, doesn't it even, I mean, even if, again, let's just be honest, if, if we're real, doesn't it even warm our hearts to be with people like us and to go, ah, oh, these are my people, this feels good. You see, it's, it's not just in our culture that this is difficult. It's difficult because it's so easy and we like it not to be this way. If you think all the way back to Middle school or high school, middle school and high school, don't people just naturally gravitate towards certain groups? I don't know what it is today. I don't think there's any high schoolers in here. You can tell me what it's like today. But back in the day, you know, it was we got the skaters or we have the goths or we have the preps or we have the thugs or we've got the, you know, the different groups of people. The jocks. Sorry, I left that one out. That might, you know, I wasn't a part of that one, so I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> um, you're like... <laughs> I was a part of all the other ones combined. I was a very weird child. So, um, I was listening to Tupac and Nirvana blended at the same time. Um, <laughs> that's actually kind of true. But um, you, it starts then, right? And people just naturally, and it feels good. You just gravitate towards people like you. But then that happens even, I mean, just even on basic things like your sports teams. We gravitate and say, yeah, these are my people. This is my group. You gravitate even in neighborhoods. We want to live in certain kind of neighborhoods where we would go into that neighborhood and say, these are my people. This is the kind of people. Oh, yes, there's families here. Oh, yes, there's, this, there's hipsters here. I like this. Or, oh, yes, there's, there's this kind of people here. Or, yes, there's this kind of race here. Whatever. We say, man, yes, this is my people. I want to be here. Because it's easy. It's easy, right? Like, if we're honest, part of why inclusive community is difficult just to begin with is if we just say, isn't it easy? 
Isn't it? Don't we even sometimes just like to be with people like us if we are honest? And James says, here's, here's where that comes from, and here's why inclusive community is difficult. He says you have, to un, you have to look underneath what's happening at the surface. And he uses this language of when we're doing this, we are judges with evil thoughts. We're judges with evil thoughts. And see, this idea of judgment, James says, here's what happens when you're making these distinctions. Here's what happens. Here's where this is coming from. Here's what's going on underneath. It's the idea of judgment that you are judging with evil thoughts. There's things in your mind, you're thinking, you are judging. But where does judgment come from? What is that? The idea of judgment is an idea of superiority. The idea of judgment is I sit up here and I look down and make assessments and make evaluations. And see what happens in our life, where the judgment comes from, where the feeling of superiority comes from, is we build our identity on different things. We build our value, we build our sense of worth, we build our sense of who I am on different things. It can be your race, it can be your education, that I'm someone with a master's degree, or I'm someone with a doctorate, or I'm someone, maybe you're not educated in the traditional way at all, but I'm someone with street smarts, or I'm someone that has, you know, whatever. I've gone to the University of Phoenix, and, you know, I have, I've rejected the traditional model. I do it online, you know. Whatever it is, that we're people that we, we base our value and our identity in various things in our looks, in our appearance, in our health, in our wealth, in our status, all those different things. We base our identity in various things. We base our identity in various things. But the more that something becomes a part of our identity, the more that it's important to your sense of worth, to your sense of value, to your sense of who you are. Just think about what that is for you. What is important to you as your sense of value and worth and this is who I am? the more that, be, maybe it's politics, maybe it's, the more that becomes important to you, the more it becomes easy to feel superior to those that don't share it and thus judge, to become a judge with evil thoughts, to become one that says, this is so central to my value. This is so central to my worth. It's not just that I value education. I am an educated person. It's not just that I value open-mindedness. It's that I'm an open-minded person and thus I judge and look down on those that are not. You see, whatever becomes your sense of value, worth, identity becomes your source of judgment. It becomes your, if you want to think, carry on the analogy of judgment, it becomes your constitution. It becomes the thing that you assess, is this good, is this bad? Are they good, are they bad? It becomes your foundation. And that's where James is talking about the idea of a judge with evil thoughts, that if we build our identity on things, the more we love something, the more we get worth from it, the more that we get value from it, we have to feel superior to those that don't share it. If to me, the idea of education is where my value and my worth comes from, I have to feel superior to people that are not educated. If my value, if my worth comes from, as the specific example says, my wealth, I have to feel superior to those that have not been able to earn that much, whether it's because I think they're lazy or I think they haven't tried hard enough or I think whatever it is. If something becomes essential to my value, to my worth, then I become a judge with evil thoughts. I feel superior to others. And here's what James is saying. Remember, he's writing to Christians, and here's, so here's what he's saying. So you're a Christian. Okay, great. You're a Christian. But isn't it true that in some ways these various things are still core to your identity? Isn't it true that in some ways these things are still what you're actually operating out of? That still give you that sense of value that you still make judgments on other people based on? 
See, what is that for you? What we end up valuing, what we end up valuing as glorious is the thing that, man, this is what it's all about. What we end up valuing as glorious then becomes what we show partiality and favoritism towards. See, if what I value is success, if what I value is looking good, then I am automatically, if that becomes where I stand as superior and that's my, my sense of judgment is looking good, I'm automatically going to give preference towards people that I feel like look good. And I'm automatically going to spend my money towards that. I'm automatically going to spend my time with people I feel like look good. I'm automatically going to, to respect people that look like that. See, if my sense of value and worth, if something has become central to my identity, if, if, it's, if it's being a good mom, if it's being a good mother, and that becomes central to your identity, if it's being a good father and that becomes central to your identity, that's where you get worth. You look down on those that aren't doing that and you then begin to show partiality. You then begin to show favoritism towards those that are and those are the people that you respect and those are the people that you want to spend time with and those are the people that you like and this is how we start to form cliques and groups with people like us because they're all sharing the same value. They're all sharing the same identity. They're all sharing the same worth. They're all sharing that same constitution. And we show partiality, and we show favoritism, and we show like attracts like. So who do you give preference towards? Think, think about this. Who do you give preference towards? Who is it that you respect and really want to spend your time with and spend your money with? Different identities lead to different preferences, which then creates a community that's not inclusive. And here's what makes it even harder. Here's what even makes it worse. We're blind to the fact that we're doing it. We're blind to the fact that we're doing it because you are being inclusive, but only if people like you. See, James goes on to say, look, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, if you really love your neighbor as yourself, if you really are doing that, if you're really doing that, you won't show partiality. But he describes a situation in which a person says, look, I'm not cheating on anybody. I'm not killing anybody. So I'm fine. I am loving my neighbor. So I'm fine. And James says, no, if you really love your neighbor, if you really love your neighbor, you wouldn't show partiality. But why is James bringing that up? What's he talking about? He's talking about our tendency is to say this. I do love my neighbor that is like me. I do. I'm not, I'm not being rude to these people. I'm not cheating on anybody. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not harming anybody, but we're talking about our group, our people. It's crazy. If you look at um, the trials that happened um, after World War II and the Nazis and all of that, a lot of the people were put on trial and they're war criminals. And one of the shocking things to people was how good these people were, the Nazis. One of the shocking things to people as the trials were going down is how just normal, upright, respectable, honest, intelligent citizens these people were. Because we would expect these are going to be monsters. They're going to have fangs. It's like, no, they're honest, respectable, good fathers, good mothers, active in their churches, and killing Jews. Why? Because they were loving their neighbors. They were absolutely radically inclusive. They were not cheating. They were not killing their people, their group. 
See, James says we can be blind to this. What makes it difficult is we build senses of identity. We then feel superior towards other people. We then show preference to those people, and we don't think we're doing it because when we assess our lives, we say, I'm loving my neighbor. I'm loving my neighbor. I'm not cheating on my neighbor. I'm not hurting my neighbor. I love my neighbor. James says, you don't because you're showing partiality and you're making distinctions. You love your group. You love your group. And you may be great with your group. Look, let's take it away from Nazis because everyone can go, yeah, those people. You love your group. You love your family. You love your friends. You love your clique. But does that mean that you're inclusive of other people? See, James says one of the things that makes inclusive community so difficult is we're blind to it. We're bl- we don't think we're doing it. We think that we're just going along and we're actually being good people, but we're actually showing partiality, which James says, look, you think you're not killing people and you're not doing adultery, that's fine, but you break one part of what God says, you're breaking all of it. Showing partiality, James says. So it's difficult It's difficult because we base our value on things. It's difficult because we're blind to it happening and don't actually think it's even a big deal because in other avenues we're being loving, inclusive people. It's difficult because it's happening at a deeper level, which means we can't just create laws. We can't just stop it. We can't just educate ourselves. Those things might all help in various ways, but because it's happening at a deeper level, we need more. And it becomes very difficult. So what does inclusive community look like? This is the second thing we need to understand if we want to experience it. We have to know why it's difficult. It's happening at an identity level. But what what does it actually look like? Because again, you may think that you do have it because you're being inclusive and welcoming and loving and giving friendship and not showing partiality to your group. What does it actually look like? look like. And what James says is it, it has to match God's heart, and it has to match God's actions. What inclusive community actually look like, what it actually looks like, is it matches God's actions, and it matches God's heart. And look what James says. He says, hasn't God chosen, he's saying, he says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? He says, look at, look, at, look at God. If you want to know what inclusive community looks like, look at God's heart. Look at what God has done. He has chosen. He's chosen these people to be in his family. That's what God's heart is. God has chosen these people to be in his family. God is an inclusive God that says, I want you in my family. Look, this is good news if you feel like you're on the outside for whatever reason. If you feel like you're on the outside of God's people, even here today in this room, if you feel, I'm on the outside because I don't look exactly like most of these people look. I'm on the outside because I don't make the money I think that these people make. I'm on the outside because I, I, I don't feel, um, I'm str- you know, sometimes people say, man, I'm struggling and everyone else seems to have it together, so I feel like I'm on the outside. Or maybe you're suffering and you say, man, I'm, I'm suffering and my life is really hard right now and everybody else seems like they're having fun and their Facebook pictures, they're in the mountains and they're playing and, and they're like doing cool stuff and I'm crying. And you go, man, man I feel like I'm on the outside because I'm struggling. I feel like I'm on the outside because I'm sinning and these people, they're holy. 
I feel like I'm on the outside. I love what God says here because it says, you know what inclusive community looks like? It matches God's heart. And God's heart says, I've chosen the people that everybody else seems to have rejected. And he's talking about poverty. But again, James is making this a bigger thing because he says, don't show partialities. Don't show favoritisms. As an example, we can look at wealth. But James says, look, if you feel like you're on the outside, that's not God's heart. God's heart is, I have chosen, and these people are actually heirs of the kingdom, James said. Heirs of the kingdom means that God has brought them all the way in, not I've chosen you to be my janitor in heaven. But God says, I've chosen you to be heirs of the kingdom, to be all the way in, that that everything that the Father has given me, you get to experience and enjoy. I've chosen you to enjoy God's kingdom. See, inclusive community, what it looks like is it matches God's heart. That for those of you even that right now feel like you're on the outside, that's not God's heart. And an inclusive community says, we match God's heart and say, no, God wants the sufferers. God wants the strugglers. God wants all the people that feel like they're on the outside. And maybe are in the world and in the church. That's what it looks like, is it looks like a community that matches God's heart, but... It doesn't just stop with God's heart. An inclusive community looks like it matches God's actions. It looks like it matches God's actions. And I, man, this is such a practical chapter. Like, we don't have ushers because, um, I don't know, we just don't. We, don't. we don't really need it that much. Maybe one day we'll have ushers. But, it, like, if you're an usher, this is your chapter. There's a chapter in the Bible that's specifically talking about seating charts. I mean, this is so practical. It's so, it amazes me that, look, biblical truth, biblical truth is nothing. Like the Bible and faith is nothing if it's not a faith that has something to say about the seating chart. That is so practical. And here's why. Look, I'm going to walk down here for a second and grab this chair. Because think about a chair. Why don't you think about this? What does this represent? It represents so much. If biblical faith has nothing to say about chairs, it has nothing to say. It's useless. If your faith is just God is love and and love your neighbor and I'm not cheating on anybody and I'm not killing anybody, if that's your faith, James says, look, you don't, it's useless, it's dead, it's worthless. Real faith has something to say about chairs. Real faith has something to say about chairs. God cares about chairs because you know what a chair is? It's very practical. James says, look, If you tell someone, sit here, look, you look good, sit next to me. You've got money, sit next to me. You look like me, sit next to me. That's practical. A chair represents, look, who who you're sitting next to represents who is your people. Who you're sitting next to. Who you sit next to, who you eat, a chair. Think about a chair. It's who you eat with. A chair is who you eat with. It's who you drive up to the mountains with. A chair is is who you talk with. A chair is who you you laugh with. A chair is who you cry with. Who's sitting next to you represents so much of your life. And if, if our faith has nothing to say about the seating chart, if our faith has nothing to say about who's sitting next to me, it's a useless faith. Because all of us have experienced seating chart woes 
I think, at different times in our life. You walk into a room and feel, where should I sit? Who am I going to sit next to? You're seated at a, at a place in a meeting, usually based on your value, usually based on your worth. You're seated oftentimes, I mean, I, I can give a thousand examples, but I'm just going to stop there. A chair represents so much. And if our faith has nothing to say about a seating chart, it has nothing to say. Who, who sits next to you? Different races sitting next to you? Or different socioeconomic statuses sitting next to you? Different physical appearances sitting next to you? Different genders sitting next to you? Not because you're a creep. Or different, like, yes, I'm surrounded by women. Well, that's not what James is talking about. Who's sitting next to you? How about, how about different kind of demographics, old and young? Only married people, if you're married, is that, is that it? Only single people, if you're single, is that it? Only families, if you're a family, is that it? James says, look, chairs matter to God. Chairs matter to God. The person in the chair next to you says so much. Says so much. And I, James, man, he... He's really practical. He says, when someone comes in to church, where do they sit? Where do you want them to sit? Where do you want them to sit? That is what faith is about. See, an inclusive community matches God's heart because God says, I choose you. You're not on the outside of my heart. But it matches God's actions because God wants you to sit next to him. It matches God's actions because when someone walks in and is interested in God, God doesn't say, I'd like the rich guy with the gold finger and this person. God, when someone, God says, I want you. I want you to sit next to me. That's his heart, but it's God's actions too. That God pursues and brings people next to him of all kinds and all types and all everything. God says, I want you to sit next to me. An inclusive community looks like one that matches God's heart. And it matches God's actions. So let me ask you, are you inclusive? <clears throat> Who's in your chair next to you? And I'm, you know, I theoretically I'm talking about right now, but also just at work and your friendships. Who sits next to you? Are you inclusive or do you show distinction like James says? And you say, but I sit next to people and I'm, I don't, and I, again, go back to what James says. I'm, I'm not cheating on anyone. I'm nice to these people. But who? The who matters, not just the what. The who matters, not just the what, because it matters to God. One of the things we talk about at our church is we don't want to just be friendly, but we want to give friendship. We, we don't want to just be friendly, but we want to give friendship. And that's what James is talking about here. See, James is saying, you, he, God is not just a God that's kind of like, okay, hi, how's it going? But God's a God that says, come sit with me. Come be next to me. Come be close to me. No matter who you are, no matter what other people kind of rank you as, God says, I want you. And an inclusive community looks like that. This is part of the problem, I would say this, and maybe this doesn't apply to you because you're here today. But I'm not naive to think it doesn't go through anybody's mind. This is part of the problem with a trend in our day, today. 
trend in church today is people say, look, you know what? I don't really need church. I need some Christian friends, and maybe we'll, we'll hang out together, and we can even do good things together. We can even, you know, go downtown and serve soup to people that need soup. And who doesn't need soup? You know, I mean, everybody likes soup, but we can, we can go do that. And, and, we can, and I've got my people that are, I'm going to cry with, and my people that are going to encourage me, and my people that, and, and, and there's a lot, this is a big trend in Christianity right now, to say we don't need the church, we don't need an organized religion, we just need our group, our Christian friends to just spend time with, and we'll even do good things. But you know one of the biggest problems with that? You don't get this, because you're not going to choose. You're not, everybody I know that's doing that, and everybody even that at a public platform that talks about doing that, it's not an inclusive community. It's a community of people like themselves that have said, this feels really good and this feels really comfortable. And you know what? They never have to worry about what James talked about. They never have to worry about two different kinds of people walking in and going, who's going to sit where? Because they've already chosen to them all the people with gold on their fingers and fine clothing. They've already chosen the people like them and said, this feels good. Now let's go live the ways of Jesus together. But from the very beginning, they're rejecting the ways of Jesus. See, if that ever feels like a temptation in your heart to say, man, I don't feel like I need organized religion or I don't need church or I don't, I, I get that. I've been there. I've, I, I get it. Seriously, I do. And there's a lot of junk that happens in the church. James is describing junk right here. He's saying this literally happens in the church, that a poor dude walks in and someone says, sit at my feet. That can be reason for someone to go, whoa, the church is whack and walk away. But James says, yeah, the church is whack. Yeah, there's issues. Yeah, there's problems. And you know what you get if you leave it? None of that. You get just everything you've always wanted, a community of people tight-knit, close, and closed and James says, God is an inclusive God. And the gospel is that God is a welcoming God, wanting to bring people into his family. And when we self-select, we never choose that. See, inclusive community is difficult because it's based on identity structures and we're blind to it. We're blind to it happening because we think it's going great with our group. But what inclusive community actually looks like is one that matches God's heart. It matches God's heart and it matches God's actions that says, sit next to me. Sit next to me. And I love that how practical it is because James will not let us stay in our heads. This is what this book is going to do over and over and over again. And if you don't like that, you should probably stop coming because it's going to be a challenging book. Over and over and over again, what James is going to do is say, faith can't stay in your head. Faith can't stay at a level of abstraction. Faith can't stay at a level of theology. Faith can't stay at a level of belief. What happens next? What happens next if you say you have faith? See, James wants us to have a faith. We talked about at the very beginning, if, if faith has nothing to say to the stress going on in your life, that's useless because we're all stressed. If faith has nothing to say to what creates an inclusive community, that's useless because that's something that our culture is talking about. It's something that we desire. It's something we know, all of us know is an issue. If faith has nothing to say to that, 
That's useless. And James says, look, God wants us to have a faith that creates a different kind of person, a different kind of community that is as practical as talking about a chair. So, last question is this. How do we, how do we get that? That's what an inclusive community looks like. It's one that matches God's heart. It's one that matches God's actions. How do we get that? Something everybody wants, but very difficult. Difficult out there in the world, but difficult in our own hearts, if we're honest. How do we get it? And the key is what James says in the very beginning of the passage. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. This is the key. The key is faith in the Lord of glory. It's a very interesting terminology. I mean, James could have said, as you hold faith in Jesus the King, or as you hold faith in God that's a loving God, or as you hold faith, mean, he could have picked a lot of things. He could have just said, as you hold faith in the Messiah, or as you hold faith in Jesus, without any sort of title. But it's not used a lot this way James structures it. You see, this is the key, James says. As you hold faith in Jesus, the Lord of glory, as you hold faith in the Lord of glory, don't do these things, and here's what it looks like, and but that intro is what matters. The key is faith in the Lord of glory because here's what glory is. Glory is something when we're talking about God that, I mean, really when we're talking about anything, but glory is something that all, all that's good about that thing, all that is good and all that's, val- if you were to say, man, Denver is a glorious city, you don't mean that it's like bright and most of the time it is. You don't mean that it's glowing or something. If you were to say, man, Denver's a glory, you, you're, you're saying, what's the glory of Denver? What, what is the glory of Denver? And we would all, I mean, all these different things. But it's, it's the glory is the sum of all the good of that thing. Man, it's this place with beauty, and it's this place with mountains, and it's this place with craft coffee and craft beer and craft wine and craft toilet paper, like whatever you can imagine. It's beautiful. It's glorious, right? I don't actually have that, but if you do, I'll take it. It's beautiful. It's the sum of all that's good and wonderful. And what James says is, look, the glory of God is the key to this. Jesus, the Lord of glory, is the key to this. Because what's God's glory? God's glory, the sum of all that God is, His goodness, His strength, His power, His beauty, His wisdom. And he talks about Jesus and says He's the Lord of glory. You know, when Jesus went to the cross... Jesus, especially in the book of John, over and over again talks about the cross, him being crucified. He talks about that as his moment of glory. And that's not kind of this military, like, death and glory kind of thing. It's, it's this, Jesus is saying, on the cross, I will be glorified. On the cross, you will see all that is good about God. On the cross, you will see all that is strong about God, all that is wise about God, all that is inclusive and welcoming about God, all the sum of the beauty of God you will see. I will be glorified on the cross, Jesus says. That's when you'll see my glory. You see, here's what this means when James is trying to remind us, when he's trying to get us back to thinking about the Lord of glory. It means when we see his glory, when we see what makes God awesome on the cross, when we, see G- when we remember Jesus is the one that is glorious, when we see that, when we remember this God that would give us grace, that would forgive us, that would invite all to come to him, that would bring sinners into his family, that would bring the suffering and the sick and the weak into his family, 
When we think of a God on the cross that says, you want to see what's awesome about me? Look here on the cross. That I would die for my enemies. That I would bring people into my family that reject me. You want to see my strength? Look at me showing my weakness and yet defeating sin and death. You want to see my wisdom? Look at what looks like folly to everybody else, a God that would die and yet what saves. You want to see my glory? Look at the cross. James says when we see Jesus' glory, when we remember his glory, when we have faith, belief, confidence, are drawn to, are attached to that God that shows his glory there, all other glories that we value, all other identities that we value begin to go away. We can't hang on to them. We can't hold faith in the Lord of glory, as James says. Hold your faith in the Lord of glory. We can't hold faith and other glories at the same time because that's a glory that crowds all other glories away. You see, you can't say, this is what's glorious, and look at Jesus, and say, and gold rings, and look and fly. You can't say, here's what's glorious, a God on the cross, a God on the cross that was beaten and scourged. That's what's glorious. A God that gave up everything for me. That's what's glorious, and success. You can't say, here's what's glorious. Here's what's glorious, my, my political position." And a God that showed his glory in loving and including and welcoming people of all different kinds. See, James says, as we hold faith in the Lord of glory, if we see him as glorious, all other glories fade. And then what happens is it's not just our behaviors that change. It's not just our seating chart that changes. Our identity changes. What we value changes. What we look at as glorious changes. So we can no longer say success in education and our family status and our marital status and, and our race. We can no longer say that's really what matters. Because if we worship this God who has shown all glory in a different way, what we value changes. And so our identity changes. But there's another thing that James means by the Lord of glory. And it's not just that Jesus is glorious on the cross. It's that he is the giver of glory to us. See, one of the things the Bible talks about all the time is that, that God has given us his glory. And it talks about that in different ways, but, but you can think about that in that he's given us a new identity. He's given us his righteousness. He's, he, so here's what this means. Look, if, and James says it here. If you're poor, God has given you glory because he's chosen you. Everybody else might reject you. Everybody else might say you're on the outside, but God has given you his glory because he says, you're mine. See, God is the God of glory because of who he is and what it shows about him, but he's the God of glory. Jesus is the God of glory because he gives us his glory. And James talks about love in this chapter. And he talks about mercy, and he talks about honor, and he talks about all these different things. And even the end when he's talking about that mercy triumphs over judgment. All of what he's saying there is that when we live in this way, we show it's evidence that we have a new identity. You want to know the evidence that you have a new identity and it's no longer the other things? James says it's this. It's that you give mercy to other people. It's that you are honoring other people. It's that you love other people because you have a new identity. If not, James says, you'll be judged. But the point that James is making there is those that actually have experienced this, those that have experienced God's mercy, give mercy. That's the evidence of it. 
It's not do this and you'll get it. It's if you actually have it, the evidence is that you are reflecting it. If you've received a different identity from God, then you, then you live in a different way. So here's what I'll just wrap up with. Who's difficult for you? Who do you show partiality towards? Who do you not want to sit next to? If you're honest, look, I'm not asking you to raise your hand and say it. Who do you not want to sit next to? Who do you not want in this chair? Fat people? Ugly people? Good-looking people? Rich people? Poor people? Black people? White people? Hispanic people? Republicans? Democrats? Who do you not want to sit next to you? James says, you know what will help your heart? You know what will help your heart? Holding faith in the Lord of glory. Look, we got, look I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to stand up here and say that all my seats of everyone next to me is exactly what James would want it to be. I think this is a challenge for all of us. But I think we need to take James seriously and say, I need to hold faith in the Lord of glory and let that affect my seating chart. I need to ask God to remind me what actually is glorious and ask him to show me and build into me that my worth and my value is in the glory he's given me, not these things, so then that I am drawn to people who are different from me because that's not what matters anymore. What if we reminded ourselves? What if we held on to this faith? Imagine... Imagine a community where what the world thinks about you if you're someone on the outside. Imagine a community where that literally wasn't affected by it. A community where if you were poor, that didn't put you on the outside. If you're a different race, it didn't put you on the outside. If you're, if you're a different personality type, it didn't put you on the outside. Like Imagine a community where you could actually experience that. That's what the world is trying to create, and it never works. And James says, here's how we get it. And here's what God wants for you. I love that our God is like this. I love that what God wants for you and me is to be a part of a community where nothing external is what defines us. But what defines us is his glory given to us. That's equalizing. And it's inclusive. And it's the power we need if we want to have that kind of community. When we take communion, that's what we remember. We remember a, a God that showed his glory and his body broken and his blood shed and saying, I want everyone in my family and you get my value, you get my worth, you get your sins forgiven, you get my righteousness given and you get to live in and enjoy my family. And we're bonded around this. We're not bonded around our wealth or our education or our skin. We're bonded around the fact that we've all received glory from him, changed by him. So that's what we do as we come now to take communion and we will sing songs to help us remember this good God. Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this truth. I thank you that you are an inclusive God that invites us into your family. That you're an inclusive God that doesn't look on the outside, but you look on the inside. But even more than that, you change the inside. 
God, I pray that you would help us as a church. Just pray for us as a church, God. We need you. God, I pray for us as a church. We need you. James says that if we're not killing people and we're not cheating on our spouse, great. But that if we're partial and we show favoritism, we're breaking your law and breaking your heart. Let us not be a community that lies about who you are. God, move our faith into the practical, both in this room, as James is talking about. Move our faith into the practical in this room, but in our lives, the chairs next to us. God, may they change. May who sits in the chairs next to us change. We need you, God. Drive these truths into our heart of who you are as a good and glorious God as we sing and take communion.